0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Good to have you along. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com. Here's Website, uh, podcasts are there, as well as on uh, Spotify and iTunes, of course. And uh, on social media, at Dan Prof Show, Facebook, as well as Twitter, also on Twitter, at Dan Prof. So uh, the last debate before certainly the South Carolina primary on Saturday, but also March 3rd, Super Tuesday, 14 states and a third of the delegates at stake. Final impressions for the nation of the seven Democrat socialist running. And uh, the way that I saw last night's debate was the Bolshevik versus the Mensheviks. One Bolshevik and six Mensheviks. Uh, It was interesting in terms of who was successful or how much this advanced the flag of the Democrats. You know, I'm a conservative, so I'm not uh, really the audience. So you look at left-wing outlets to see how they received the performances of their candidates, and I look at the Daily Beast. Democrats, des- uh, desperate Dems, wanted to debate. They got a train wreck instead. If you wanted a debate to help you make up your mind, you came away disappointed. Instead, what you got was shouting and sighs, canned lines, and badly landed jokes. Thank you, Mike Bloomberg. Kurt ways for the candidates uh, to uh, curt ways for the candidates showing they had more to say. And not so subtle pleas for campaign donations and virtually everyone begging for more time. But there was this moment and, you know, uh, there's a lot of suggestion, you know, Biden held his own. So that'll hold his lead and perhaps give him uh, enough of an advantage to score his first presidential primary victory of his life uh, three times, three decades. But uh, the suggestion that, uh, you know, everybody just sort of survived and nobody really advanced their position much. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders did. Not the, through the entirety of the debate, but towards the end of it, this exchange with uh, and Pete was instructive. This is sort of what I had recommended pre-debate that he do if I was advising Bernie Sanders, which would never happen. But just looking at it strictly from a, a tactical point of view, you heard it at the end with their sort of kitschy uh What's the biggest misperception of you question, right? And uh, Bernie Sanders, in asking that last question, disclosed what his real mission was that night, uh, last night.
2: Misconception. Yes. Misconception.
3: And you're hearing it here tonight. Is that the ideas I'm talking about are radical. They're
1: not in one form or another. They exist in countries all over the world. But even more important than that, for his purposes, the premises of all of his proposals are shared by everybody on stage. That's what he that's Bernie's advantage, in addition to the other six candidates trying to climb one and over one another, to get out of the bucket and uh, be on the stage alone with him. When the Mensheviks came at him, hand wringing about socialism, particularly in the context of electability. The opportunity, turn it right back on them. What is it that I've proposed you don't support? Insert name of candidate. Free college, college debt cancellation, free child care, zero to four, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, tax hikes, wage minimums. The fact is the Mensheviks have conceded all of the Bolsheviks' premises and most of his conclusions. To the extent there is opposition to any of his conclusions – it's a difference in pace, not destination. And by exposing their posturing, he defangs the charge of extremism. Basically saying, hey, look, everybody, this is who we as a Democrat Socialist Party have chose to become. And isn't it? This is best illustrated, even with the petulance of and Pete talking over him with this exchange between the two.
4: And they're certainly not going to win by reliving the Cold War. And we're not going to win these critical, critical House and Senate races if people in those races have to explain why the nominee of the Democratic Party is telling people to look at the bright side of the Castro regime. Thank We've you. got to be a lot smarter about this right. and Sen- look Sen- Senator Sanders, okay. Senator
5: Sanders, your response.
4: Uh, let us be clear. Do we think health care For all, Pete is some kind of radical communist idea. Do when we think raising let's talk about the minimum no, wage, I, to I, to wage to a living wage? Do we think building really the millions of this units really of affordable housing? No, if, if that we ask do, that do we, question, we think raising taxes on billionaires is a radical let's idea? Let's talk about, about what's radical about that plan. Senator Is please. a radical idea. The things you just named are things The things that truth is named the American people support by agenda. you're talking about that's why I am beating Trump in virtually every I every mean, day. Exactly. It's not, not only
1: it's not only why Sanders is just not nearly as unpopular as he needs to be for Mannequin Pete or anybody else on stage. And I'm talking about uh, generally as well, obviously, within Democrat ranks, whereas we've discussed his f- fave on fave is uh, almost four to one. Which is uh, and his name ID is uh, 90 hard name ID is 90 percent. That's a strong position. He's the second choice of a lot of people who aren't voting for him straight away right now, which suggests, as we have explained on this show, that the Democrat Socialist Party will rally around the Bolshevik if he's the nominee. If he piles up uh, a majority, even a plurality of the delegates, which he is well positioned to do as we stand... uh, You know, just a a week out from a third of the delegates being distributed. Yeah, that's the problem they have. The problem that those on the stage have is they have decided to go on this same journey that Bernie has been on for 40 years. Some are just strolling while he's sprinting. Uh, notable and quotable from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, This is from Michael Utrecht and Megan Day in a February 22nd Salon essay uh, adapted uh, from a book that is forthcoming from the two, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democrat Socialism. Uh, Don't think that uh, nobody's got a roadmap. You may have people pandering and posturing, trying to, Uh, position themselves in the democrat uh, field for president but uh, others including bernie and of course a lot of his dyed in the wool reds uh, that are supporting well they certainly have a destination in mind uh this from that book bigger than bernie adherence to the democrat democratic road strategy don't claim to know the precise sequence of events that will lead us to socialism nor do we pretend it will be a cakewalk to eliminate capitalism But we do know the United States will not be able to achieve anything like socialist governance and join other nations in the project of building international socialism without both a mass movement of workers and the formal power to stop capitalists from undermining that movement as it engages in class struggle. We see engagement in electoral politics as an important tactic for accomplishing both of these goals and ultimately bringing about a scenario in which the working class can actually win. Boy, the, the Marxist dream never dies, does it? We've seen they go on that left elected officials can not only win office, but can widen the scope of political possibility, even when they're only a small minority of legislators in a given elected body. Think socialist spice girls in the House, for example, my parenthetical remark. They continue. But it's not enough for socialists to be a tiny minority in the House of Representatives or run inspiring but fail campaigns for president or hold only 10 percent of the seats in a city council. Our aims have to be much bigger than that. We don't want simply to fight against some other political majority. We want to become the majority, and we believe we can get there. Well, they have every reason to believe they can get there, at least the political majority in one of the two major parties. You know why they should believe they could get there? Because everybody on stage running for president last night in Charleston, South Carolina, is there. They're there. On all of those topics that Bernie rattled off or I rattled off for him, distinguish other than in tone and, as I said, in pace, the Bernie proposals from Elizabeth Warren's, from Mannequin Pete's, even the Bloomberg's and the Biden's, largely on board. I mean, yeah, Bloomberg talks about believing in capitalism, but he's spent the entirety of his campaign and did so for extended periods of time again last night, apologizing for Things he is alleged to have done, things he has done and is alleged to have done, both sort of professionally, interpersonally, as well as politically, and uh, what the, you're going to to sort of casually sit back and game plan for a broker convention. By the time you figure out that math, Caesar Mike, Bernie's going to have a big Super Tuesday, and be on his way to a nomination. You won't be able to take away. This is the damn
0: good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. James O'Keefe and his Project Veritas undercover journalists have done it again. They've got uh, two ABC News Folks on camera talking about media coverage of President Trump and media coverage generally. Longtime ABC News correspondent David Wright, who has done presidential interviews. I mean, he's been around for a couple of decades, at least his work appearing on Nightline as well as on ABC News. And uh, ABC News producer Andy Fees criticizing their own network for not reporting newsworthy stories, for living in a bit of a bubble. It's really remarkable stuff. Here's David Wright talking to uh, one of O'Keefe's undercover reporters, commenting on, you know, the truth and how it suffers based on the reporting that's done by the Beltway Big Government Press
4: Corps. Well, I feel like it's, like, like, the truth suffers,
0: the voters are poorly informed, and people also have the opportunity to
6: tune into whatever they want to hear. And
0: so there's no, like... I don't know. There's, there's, it's like there's no upside and uh, our bosses don't see an upside in doing the job that we're supposed to do, which is to, hold, uh, and to speak truth to and power and hold people to
1: account. No upside to doing the job we're supposed to do, said Wright, which is to speak truth to power and hold people accountable, or in the Finley-Peter Dunn formulation, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. We don't do that. Uh, His producer or a producer, I should say, Andy Fees, talking about incidents of fake news using the uh, erroneous initial coverage of the Kobe Bryant story who was killed in that helicopter crash as an example of the shoddiness of the news gathering process before you would air something. A lack of checking and an admission about all they really care about. A
7: colleague of mine fucked
2: up on Kobe Bryant and said that uh, all of his daughters died in helicopter crash. And that was a... <laughs> up. He just... Up. Um, and uh, got bad information and reported bad information and has paid the price for it. He got suspended.
5: But, you know...
1: Fake news abounds. Fake news abounds.
2: problems with the two.
1: Fake news abounds. On political coverage, Fee's went on to say, I don't think we're terribly interested in voters. We need the story to move on. And so we're happy to have Buddha Judge be the story last week. We're happy to have Klobuchar as the new subject this week, and then we're tired of her. We'll be delighted if Elizabeth Warren kicks ass in Nevada because then we have something new to talk about. We just want conflict, that's all, said Fleas. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Going back to David Wright talking about Trump and how ABC News covers Trump or doesn't.
8: We don't hold him to account. We also
6: don't give him credit for what things he does do. Again, I think some of that, at least in in the place that I work and and the places like it, is that um, we, you know, with Trump, we're interested in three things: we're interested in the outrage of the day, the investigation, and kind of the palace intrigue of who's backstabbing who.
1: Beyond that, we don't really cover the guy. He mentioned, you know, we don't hold him to account, but we also don't give him credit, you know, cover him in a way that gives him credit for the things he actually does. You heard their buckets of stories that they're interested in. Wright goes on to explain the consequence of that.
0: But I think that we we don't have the bandwidth to give everybody a fair shot. And, and we
3: should. And we're in this awkward moment where,
2: and, 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 and created by this awkward moment, we have to the president. And we can't figure out how to
1: challenge him. Can't figure out how to challenge the president. I mean, so you have Wright, David Wright, who's coming from a place of not being particularly fond of the president. He's philosophically uh, where most of the rest of the D.C. press corps is, as I explained last week, that uh, recent public policy paper that graphed the Twitter accounts of the so-called Gang of 500 inside the Beltway and found that the modal journalist is somewhere between AOC and Bernie Sanders. Well, that's where David Wright is, self-described socialist.
9: Do you consider yourself a democrat socialist? Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. I, like, more than that, i consider myself a socialist. Like, uh, I think there should be national health insurance. I'm totally fine with reining in corporations. I think there are too many billionaires, and I think that there's a wealth gap that's a problem.
1: Right, and that's all well and good. At least he's also simultaneously pointing up. As he said at the outset, I feel terrible about it. I feel the truth suffers. Voters are poorly informed. People also have the opportunity to tune into whatever they want to hear. The bosses don't see an upside into doing the job we're supposed to do. So to some extent, there's a uh, reckoning that he provides to the culture within ABC News, wanted ABC News. Oh, by the way, the result of these disclosures by Project Veritas today, David Wright has been suspended. (laughs) Of course he has. Who gets suspended at CNN over the weekend? The Sunday talkies were all aflutter with the leak of the briefing of the House Intelligence Committee suggesting that uh, they have estimate, an analysis and evidence that Russia is intent on meddling in the 2020 election and their nefarious activities are afoot. Leaked briefing to the U.S. House Intelligence Committee, the briefing that they received from a top security election security official. Right. Shelby Pearson. Well, CNN reporting today, the U.S. intelligence community's top election security official appears to have overstated the intelligence community's formal assessment of Russian interference in the 20 election, omitting important nuance during a briefing with lawmakers earlier this month, according to three national security officials who spoke to CNN. Well, there you go. I suppose that's what happens when you rely on leaked information coming from, oh, I don't know, perhaps Adam Schiff slash his staff To try to whip the Russia story back into relevance, give people something to chat about on a debate stage, to demagogue on the campaign trail. And here we are again. Matt Taibbi, who we've had on the show, Rolling Stone, man of the left, Russia isn't dividing us, our leaders are. He goes through the ridiculous Russia narrative, which he has frankly been describing as such for years. The extraordinary thing about this campaign to identify basically the entire universe of political thought outside of establishment Democrats in the U.S. as Russian assets has been the obvious projection involved. The plot running through all these stories has been the idea Russia is trying to undermine our democracy by sowing division. But these charges are coming from the same people who spent the past four years describing Republicans as deplorable fascists and progressives on the other side and progressives on the other side as racist, sexist, Nazis, and digital brown shirts. This has resulted in a four-year parade of official cranks muttering about Russian efforts to divide us when their own relentless message has been that America is besieged by a pair of Hitlerian movements on the left and right that must be put down at all costs. As a result, we get situations like last week. This uh, misstatement of the intelligence estimate about Russian meddling leaked from a briefing. The logic of Russiagate is now beyond absurd, writes Taibbi. Vlad Putin somehow in perfect sync with American voting trends seek to elevate both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, apparently to compete against himself in the general election in a desperate effort to suppress the terrifying political might of, say, Joe Biden. I doubt even Nira Tandon, in the depths of a wine coma, could believe this plot now. It really is remarkable. And yet it persists. You heard the clip I played from Larry O'Donnell over the week, uh, from his MSNBC show over the weekend in response to Ursat's CNN story.
0: But we begin tonight with another test of America's ability to be shocked by Donald Trump, who has very deliberately shocked America to the point where he hopes that shock has been replaced by
1: acceptance the president is a russian operative shock replaced by acceptance i'm sorry who's desirous of that this is the dan proft
5: you're
1: listening
0: to the dan proft show on the salem radio network
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Yesterday at his press avail, while uh, still in India, President Trump had uh, this to say about the high court and uh, whether or not uh, certain justices should be recusing themselves for cases involving him because of a political animus, personal dislike. She and Justice
0: Ginsburg should recuse themselves from future cases dealing with the administration. What is the basis for your opinion on that? Well, it's very obvious. I mean, uh, I always thought that, frankly, that Justice Ginsburg should do it because she went wild during the campaign when I was run standard. But at the same time, I think it's a higher standard in a certain sense. So they'll have to decide what to do. But her statement was so inappropriate when you're a justice of the Supreme Court. And it's almost what she's trying to do is take the people that do feel a different way and get them to vote. Uh, the way that she would like them to vote. I just thought it was so inappropriate. Such a terrible statement for a Supreme Court Justice. What, what was think. inappropriate about the statement? I'm, I'm not an attorney, so I can't really Why look into you know these, what the but, statement
2: was, John. Well, was,
0: she seemed to criticize the White House for running to the Supreme Court at the drop of a hat to seek. No, statement. I don't think that was it. But I think what she did say is she's trying to shame the way I look at it. He's trying to shame people with perhaps a different view into voting her way. And that's so inappropriate.
1: Well, um, and look, to the president's point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you'll recall, apologized during, effectively apologized during the presidential campaign in 2016 for what she termed ill-advised comments when she said, I can't imagine what the country would be with Donald Trump as our president. Uh, She said that her late husband would have said it was time for us to move to New Zealand. She also called Trump a faker. So she recognized those were ill-advised coming from a Supreme Court justice at the time. And then now there's this other matter. And so this is prompting the review that you heard from President Trump. Now, the idea of a Supreme Court justice uh, trying to persuade her colleagues on a particular matter of law, that doesn't strike me as a grounds for recusal. But let's discuss this among some other matters with uh, former United States Attorney General and Federal Judge Michael Mukasey, who joins us now, Judge Mackenzie? Thanks for, for so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, what do you think about what uh, Trump said about uh, Be- uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sotomayor?
10: Well, as usual, I think his comments were way over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's entitled to his opinion, but I don't think he uh, helps his cause any uh, by sounding off on the, uh, about the Supreme Court. He, he said early on that he is. Uh, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. And in a technical sense, that's right, because mm-hmm. he sits at the top of the executive. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if that's true, then he has the same obligation that anybody in the entire law enforcement hierarchy has, which is not to uh, subject the system to improper pressure and not to endanger anybody's ability to get a fair hearing. And when he sounds off the way he did yesterday, that doesn't help things.
1: You, uh, you and uh, uh, one of your colleagues, former Attorney General Ed Meese, uh, wrote a piece and Wall Street Journal uh, last week uh, in defense of William Barr, our current attorney general, of course, and uh, his intervention in the Roger Stone case um, the, the, and, and, and also to, you know, the back and forth that he had with the president. Which I think was a little bit overblown, but I mean, in terms of your specific defense of, of Barr and his intercession, which was criticized by Democrats and all his kinds of suggestions, he resigned and all these uh, current and former Justice Department officials and so on and so forth. What is the the defense that you and uh, and Attorney General Meese offered?
10: Well, first of all, you um, say inter intervention, intercession. He's the he is the Attorney General.
1: Right. Um, he didn't right. intervene. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. It's
10: the Department of Justice case. He had an obligation, it seems to me, when his prosecutors – that not his prosecutors, but the, the DOJ prosecutors – file a, a recommendation with the court. And again, it's only a recommendation. It relates to the sentencing guidelines, which themselves are not mandatory, just advisory, but that their recommendation – in other words, that the government's recommendation – is that uh, uh, Stone be sentenced to between 90 and 108 months, that is between – uh, seven and a half, and, and, and nine years for, for his conviction. Now, the, the judge ultimately sentenced him to, to, to 40 months, um, which was right within the guideline that should have applied. What they did was to take the guideline that uh, applies to threats.
5: Well, um,
10: that guideline is really meant to be applied when the threats are, you know, for realsy. Um, he, he had a conversation, not a conversation, he had texts. To this witness, where he said things like "prepare to die" and "and, uh, uh, and I'm going to get your dog," and uh, then he also said, "My lawyer is going to going to tear you apart on cross examination." I don't know whether that cross examination would be after the witness died or before. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the, the witness the witness himself said he didn't take this stuff
1: seriously. When we come back, uh, Judge McCasey, I want to ask you about Rowan Scarborough's piece in the Washington Times that details. Other examples of other attorney generals doing the same thing Barr did in this instance, different fact circumstances, but the same thing, and uh, the uh, interesting and very different reactions uh, those actions generated uh, from the DC press corps. More with former Attorney General and federal judge Michael Mukasey when we return.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: We're back with former U.S. Attorney General and Federal Judge Michael Mukasey. And uh, Rowan Scarborough in The Washington Times had an interesting point, too, on the topic. I don't remember the hue and cry when Eric Holder, uh, I don't want to use the word intervene again, but when Eric Holder got involved in a Justice Department civil suit against the new Black Panther Party, uh, dropping the case, which right. he was entitled to do as Attorney General. Don't recall the hue and cry in 1997 when Janet Reno, the AG overruled FBI Director Louis Free, deciding not to appoint an independent prosecutor to investigate possible illegal campaign fundraising calls made by Clinton and Gore.
10: There was no hue and cry either when Eric Holder described himself as the president's wingman. Right. That was his own description of his job as attorney general. Incredible.
1: And it was crickets. That that was it. I want to get your take, both sort of legally as well as politically, to that back and forth between Barr and Trump last week. My take was this. Look, you've got uh, two guys that are very aggressive, but within the bounds of their responsibilities and powers. President Trump, if he has the power to pardon Roger Stone, he certainly has the power to comment on the case. Whether it's judicious or not, he has that Ability that is not an overreach of his authority. You know, in the context of everything that has happened with respect to all of the Russian collusion, Russian meddling allegations. You can uh, appreciate some of the president's frustration. And then Attorney General Barr, as a professional, longtime professional, wants to make it clear that, number one, that doesn't help him do his job and to a a point that Trump conceded. And number two, look, I'm making independent decisions as the attorney general, and he has every right to reassert his independence uh, in terms of the decision making. And so it's two guys that are very strong willed and have complementary roles often, but sometimes they're not on the same page because of the political interests of the president versus the prosecutorial interests of Barr. And so it was uh, much ado about, not too much.
10: Yes, but let me state my own biases. I mean, you say two guys who are very strong-willed. I mean, they, one of those guys is right and the other one's wrong. Okay. And the one who's right is Barr. And he is also the best conceivable person that the president could have in that job. And for the president to undercut him is harming himself. If the president raises doubts, about the independence of the Justice Department by making comments about cases which may very well be accurate and may very well recommend results that are justified, then what it does is push the Justice Department not to reach those results simply because they don't want to appear to be following his orders. That hurts him. It's self-defeating. It also, in a sense, raises the danger that if he makes comments about cases, then courts could intervene. And throw out charges. So he's hurting himself and he's hurting the case. I think Barr is an independent, accurate thinker. I can't think of anybody who is better suited to the job. Barr is going to testify on March 31 in front of the, uh, the House Judiciary Committee. And I can't wait for that. Oh, me too. I would buy a ticket. Yeah. I would buy a ticket to that. And and this um, is
1: going to be another one of those instances, I suspect, where, in this case, Jerry Nadler is going to regret calling him to testify.
10: Very much so, because Barr is ten times the lawyer that Jerry Nadler is, or anybody else for that matter. Uh, he's also ten times the lawyer that any of the people who signed that letter uh, urging his resignation are. I mean, earlier in his career, he was the head of an entity called the Office of Legal Counsel. That is the, the office within the Justice Department, that determines the government's legal position in cases. It is an office that is populated by only the best lawyers in the department. He headed that office. He was deputy attorney general. He was then attorney general before he became attorney general this time. So his legal stature compared to theirs, I mean, they're pygmies.
1: I wanted to get your reaction to this op-ed in The Hill by Edward Purcell, who's a New York law school professor. He suggests that uh, the Republican Party in the last three years under President Trump has embraced six principles destructive of constitutional government. They've negated the separation of power supervision by preventing Congress from obtaining relevant evidence. This, of course, goes to the article of impeachment. Second, use of the power of the office to pressure foreign governments to intervene in American elections. Third, right to utilize federal agencies to serve personal purposes compel the Justice Department to protect his friends while prosecuting his enemies, the right to use legislative appropriations for his own purposes rather than those of Congress, establishing that he cannot be impeached because removal would then illegitimately overturn a presidential election. All of those developments have occurred under Republicans, he argues, and are destructive to our constitutional government.
10: First off, most of that is inaccurate. Secondly, um, whatever is accurate isn't destructive of constitutional government. Just to take... Um, the notion of, of uh, he, he can't be removed because to do that would overturn uh, the results of an election—that's an argument. Um, what he's saying that he's not allowed to make arguments against impeachment. Um, he also um, has withheld, I think properly, uh, turning over documents to Congress. He turned over many documents, permitted witnesses to testify, um, but drew the line at some, and uh, said, "Fine, you, you think it's you think it's um, uh, improper? Take it to court." They refused to do that. I think standing on his right certainly isn't destructive of constitutional government. Um, this is a, another, you know, bit of hyperventilation by a professor.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to get uh, your take on something, some other development, too. This is a little bit below the fold, but it's, a, it's also a hopeful note, and those are not often easy to find these days. Uh, this is about the ERA, that uh, relic from the 70s, uh, right. passed in 72 uh, by Congress but fell short by the established deadline of getting the thirty-eight, the three-quarters of states to ratify it that it needed to become a constitutional amendment. Well, uh, in their infinite wisdom, states, including my home state here of Illinois, have uh, tried to resuscitate the ERA um, by noting those states that recently added their names to the ratifying to the list of uh, ratifiers. Of course, they also want you to ignore the five uh, states that rescinded their original ratifications. Most of them before the uh, the congressionally established deadline. I say all this to get to Justice Ginsburg and the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board opined on it, offering her opinion as a support of the ERA. Uh, But she said, if you count a latecomer on the plus side as a ratifier, how do you disregard states that said we changed our minds and did so before the established deadline? And so, I mean, sort of striking uh, a, a, a no without Uh, indicating where she would come down on the issue, but sort of indicating it Uh, striking a note that says, well, this is, you know, that there is separation here. Congress had the power to act. The states had a timeline in which to do it. And now they're trying to cherry pick and say late ratifiers count, but uh, early rescinders don't. And that just strikes me as unfair, even though I'm a supporter of the initiative. So uh, a hopeful note for the rule of law over the rule of men is my point.
10: I'll I'll say Um, she is. I mean, in the end, she's a supporter of the rule of law. And what she says is, if you want to pass the ERA, pass it the right way, which is exactly the proper position.
1: Yeah, I mean, just because we seem to be sort of careening towards an ends justify the means uh, justice system here, not not that Barr is not standing athwart that, of course he is, but but a lot of politicians seem to be trying to push us in that direction, and so right,
10: even some prosecutors
1: and and well and prosecutors too, indeed. He is former United States Attorney General and federal judge Michael Mukasey. Judge McCasey, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
1: Welcome back to The Damn Prof Show. I cover this story on my morning show in Chicago last fall when it occurred. This is the story of Kaya Roll, six-year-old student at a Orlando-area school who was arrested by the Orlando police. Six-year-old girl arrested by Orlando police. She's a first grader at a charter school. She had a tantrum earlier in the school day where she had kicked and punched three school employees, leading to her arrest on a charge of misdemeanor battery. Fast forward to present... And the body cam video of the arrest of this six-year-old Orlando police officer who is named Dennis, Dinner, Dennis Turner, who's now since been relieved of his duty for making this arrest in violation of Orlando Police Department regulations that require supervisor approval to arrest a child younger than 12 years old. So she had this temper tantrum earlier in the day. Now uh, one of the teachers is reading her a story when Officer Turner arrives and this happens.
8: Okay, she's gonna have to come with us
1: now. Okay,
11: Kai. Okay. we gotta go with them, baby girl.
8: Stand up. Okay, come over here.
1: Where are those four?
8: It's for so you. your
3: hands, okay?
1: Uh-huh. Come over here, honey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gonna hurt. Hey, no! Okay,
5: no, honey. I don't want handcuffs on! No! Don't put
0: handcuffs on! <laughs> God, me. Let's go. I'm going to come
9: pick
11: you up, okay?
10: Oh, hello, oh, I was
2: here Oh, I
5: just got you. Oh, come on, let's go. No, please let me go. Okay, come on. Oh, you can tell me what
0: happened
7: on the car, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, go to the police car. You don't want to no, You have to no, Give
10: me
1: a Marilyn Kirkland, Kai's grandmother, said she's hoping when people watch the footage of her granddaughter's arrest, they'll support a proposal to change the law by making 12 the minimum age for arrest. She'd also like to see school resource officers receive more training and preparation, especially to work with young children. Uh, I mean, this is insane making more rules and regulations is not the solution. This is what we have in K-12 education now when it comes to discipline. Either mindless, zero-tolerance policies, like in this case, and the adults at the school outsourcing a discipline issue to be a police issue, criminal issue, or the mindless non-discipline exhibited, for example, at Parkland High School, where they didn't want to recognize a threat by the eventual shooter who killed so many at that high school because they want to sort of end this fictional school-to-prison pipeline. You know what the common denominator is? Neutered adults with either no critical thinking skills or no courage or both. You watch this video and all of the adults that watch this happen, no critical thinking skills, no courage. And the adults at that school who watch Kaya be taken out in zip-tied handcuffs, shouldn't be in charge of supervising or educating kids. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, follow us, Danprofshow.com and on social media, at DanProft, at Dan Prof Show as well. How uh, desperate is Joe Biden to score the first political, the first presidential primary victory of his uh, career, of his life? Very. How uh, much is it uh, ride on South Carolina? The whole thing rides on South Carolina. Unsurprisingly, uh, today he got the endorsement of uh, Jim Clyburn, Congressman there, godfather of a South Carolina Democrat politics that was uh, telegraphed earlier in the week when Clyburn expressed concern about uh, the down ballot effect of Bernie Sanders as the nominee. And I guess Biden did enough pandering to hold his own uh, in last night's debate and continue to enjoy Clyburn's support. I'm not sure how much it gets him, but it probably holds some black support in place for Biden uh, despite the fact that he's making up stories again, as is his wont, the story of being arrested in South Africa, trying to visit Nelson Mandela in the 70s, something that he has not spoken of until this week. Something that was rejected by Andrew Young, former congressman, mayor of Atlanta, who is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, during the years that Biden uh, allegedly went to South Africa and was arrested, attempting to see Mandela in prison. Yeah. Another fantastical story but uh, that wasn't the only one or the only example of fantastical stories and or abject pandering. Fantastical story. uh, Joe Biden, uh, in response to the conversation about coronavirus on the debate stage last night, reminding uh, the world uh, how many millions of lives he saved.
2: What we did with Ebola, I was part of making sure that pandemic did not get to the United States, saved millions of lives.
1: Joe Biden single handedly repelled Ebola from making it to American shores, saving millions of lives by his own estimate. huh. On the pandering, uh, Joe Biden on uh, Supreme Court nominee, why he's running.
2: The fact is, what we should be doing, we talked about the Supreme Court. I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure we, facts fact, get every representation. Not a joke. Not a joke.
1: Not a joke. Why do you have to say it's not a joke if, if the idea of focusing on somebody's skin color and gender was serious? I, I've got a black female you can nominate to the high court if you're president, Vice President Biden. How about retired federal judge Janice Rogers Brown, who spent uh, a dozen years on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia? Yeah. Oh, no. Right. Because it's not about skin color and gender. It's about political ideology, of course. Hack. And then there's the, the gaffes that we, uh, again, endured over the last day from Biden to uh, naming the wrong Chinese president he uh, negotiated uh, a climate deal with. To the assertion that 150 million Americans have died from gun-related deaths in the last 13 years, since 2007. 150 million. That's, this is not even including the fictional Nelson Mandela story. I mean, it just never ends with this guy. Shameless. But perhaps he survives uh, Saturday. Saturday to make it through Super Tuesday, and that should probably be about it. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Chadwick Moore, former editor-at-large of Out Magazine, the advocate, contributor to Playboy, New York Post, and a columnist for Spectator USA. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Hey, Dan. Good to talk to you again.
1: Your assessment of, uh, of Joe Biden and uh, his... Uh, uh, supine position in uh, search of uh, the necessary black vote to win on Saturday.
6: <laughs> I think uh, I, I think you summed it up perfectly. Uh, the uh, the Nelson Mandela story, as you mentioned, we we've never heard this. The man has been in politics for six hundred and fifty years, and we've never heard this story before. And uh, uh, the uh, the pandering to the black female judge. What is he even talking about? And uh, you know the. the The uh, fact that he has to say he's not joking afterwards, okay. Okay.
1: Uh, this but, is like, uh, that, that, yeah, like a, that. That was like that. That was like some sort of like in his mind, make good for Anita Hill or something, or for <laughs> allowing Clarence <laughs> Thomas to get through. I mean, I, I don't. It's remarkable.
6: Right. I mean, what must be going on in that man's mind at any given moment uh, would be very entertaining if you could listen to it. I'm sure.
1: Uh,
6: but uh, uh, yeah. So he's. I mean, South Carolina is all he's got, and it would be the only uh, victory of his um, ever in, in a running for president primary victory. Um, so he's banking on that, and yet uh, the poll—I suppose you know—the polls say that he's ahead in South Carolina. Who can believe a poll? So who even knows? It wouldn't be surprising if he did very well in South Carolina. Um, he's got that kind of old-school, you know, the old-school Southern Democrat thing going for him. Even though he's not Southern, but, but that appeal to Southern Democrats, uh, the Obama legacy. Uh, but. Um, you know, audience favorite still said that Bernie was, uh, was uh, the the winner of the debate last night.
1: And uh, that's despite uh, the best efforts of uh, and Pete to uh, try to, you know, make this a race about tone uh, rather than, um, uh, well, rather than substance. I mean, he just says this is all tonality is is the, his selling point, Mayor Pete's. And he made the point at the end when asked about uh, people's misperception of him. That his uh, room temperature tone it, it means he's not passionate. He's very, very passionate, but you just have to have the right sort of unflappable disposition, which fortunately he possesses.
6: <laughs> right. I mean, does anyone? He sounds like everything he says is put through an Obama hope and change word generator. Not only that, he's going on to actually mimic how Obama speaks and steal Obama's words, uh, his speeches word for word. Uh, Mayor Pete is the definition of a marionette. He has no idea what he's doing. He has advisors or hired consultants sitting around telling him to use words like unflappable and to talk about tone. Why would he be talking about tone? Well, they probably show that voters biggest complaint about Donald Trump is his rhetoric and his tone. So this is what
0: he's
1: going
6: for. Good luck, Pete. You're in way over your head. You have no idea what you're doing. And not many people believe that you stand for anything at all whatsoever.
1: Well, and, and, just, and just to uh, put, put a fine point on it, I'm sure you've seen this, but uh, to your point about him being uh, uh, using uh, an Obama word generator for his speechifying, there was uh, this uh, mashup making its way around the Internet.
4: The way we when do, do we every other election it by it to the person who got the most votes. Just, just a, a thought. thought. Brings us because together. This, now, country this country was, was built. And it is a pools, movement reaching into church basements and barbershops, and in our schools, and universities, and, and with union our kids. Halls. And if, if we, we can light, light up an the neighborhood, the then we, we can, can light up the Senate. Senate. Shines a city. Shining as a beacon around the world. the world once more. And, and this, this is, is our, our chance,
8: chance to, to answer him, that call.
1: I'll tell you what—he and Obama would make a great ventriloquist act.
4: Yeah, they really would.
6: Isn't that video amazing? I can't stop watching it. It's, it's just everything is so perfect about it. And the fact that he or no nine on his team thought that uh, people might discover this and do something to, to expose how he is uh, try, how he's, uh, trying to rip off Obama. And essentially, no, he's just trying to be him. He thinks that he can just become Obama and that's how he'll get elected. Um, I'm not really sure uh, that people are buying it.
1: Why, why hasn't, uh, you know, this, I, I thought uh, perhaps early on, there was the possibility that this idea of making history, you know, sort of the the trying to mimic the Obama persona. He sort of has, in some ways, mimics his biography—a very thin record, a biography in his 30s. Uh, you know, all sort of geared to be very political, including with respect to his military service, as is documented in a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the you know being. Uh, raised by uh, a red, his uh, father, the professor. uh, Obama had uh, communist mentorship himself. There's just a lot of parallels. And, you know, make history, first African-American president in 2008, make history, first gay president, openly gay president in 2020. But the make history thing just hasn't moved uh, the needle very much for Pete. Why is that?
6: Because for, for the far left, uh, and and the woke uh, white and male definitely uh, makes him more of an enemy than him being gay. And he's not you know the whole LGBT whatever uh, in, in military industrial economy has uh, moved on from that. They like you know they like queer, they like transgender, they like uh, this gender fluid stuff. So Pete's more of an enemy. Nobody really cares, and it just shows that you know that, that how unhomophobic and how unoppressed gay people are in America, despite they they them still wanting to push that narrative. Is um, that those sort of things? Uh, the left isn't interested in that, and they don't see him as one of their uh, oppressed victim uh, classes anymore. And um, and and also, he's just so boring. At least Obama had uh, charisma. Obama knew how to speak. He was a great orator. Um, and Pete, it just time and time again shows that he's a a shell of a candidate, um, and uh, is is running for probably no other reason than validation and. Uh, um, and adoration, which uh, I don't think he he uh, likes himself very much. He doesn't even know what he believes. Um, and uh, so the historic thing, they've they clearly moved on, you know, and and, and uh, it's all about skin color now and not necessarily sexuality if you're a, a white male.
1: Chadwick Moore, former editor-at-large of Out Magazine and The Advocate, contributor to Playboy, New York Post, and columnist for Spectator USA. Chadwick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate
6: it. Thank you. My pleasure. I love me, Grab a good
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So the topic of the coronavirus, COVID-19, did come up in the Democrat-Socialist debate in Charleston last night, but well, it wasn't until uh, a good way into the second hour you thought it would have been more of a pressing issue than litigating, again, Bloomberg's uh, non-disclosure agreements. But that's not where the socialists wanted to focus, it's sort of a lot of navel-gazing. Uh, regardless, uh, some news in on that front. Uh, Senator Mike Braun from Indiana, Republican, went on with Neil Cavuto yesterday to discuss the takeaways he had from the briefing that senators received from Uh, CDC and other public health officials.
8: So I was there and I was impressed. The CDC, the FDA, uh, National Institute of Health. Across the board, I think we've got the infrastructure and we are prepared. And I know that Chuck Schumer has been doing the Schumer shuffle on trying to say otherwise. And I think that is sad because it's not the case. We know it's been explosive. And a place like China that does not have the infrastructure wasn't prepared for that kind of outbreak. You could see that by how they were scrambling to contain it. And I think here it's much different. Uh, we are uh, going to be as globally interacted as any place and for so few cases. And plus, we've got the facilities, we've got the technology, we've got the ways of treating it. We can't take it lightly, but I don't like it when Schumer is out there saying that we're ill-prepared. Uh, and with no good reason to say that, I think we are ready and it remains to be seen.
1: Well, Schumer was just uh, providing instruction for the Democrat socialist candidates to do the same on the debate stage. And that's essentially what they did, arguing about uh, Trump has defunded this and he's defunded that. And what the supplemental funding he's asking for, isn't it enough? Is it ever enough with them? So on and so forth. Uh, But there's not much to really support those claims and there's not a lot of specificity to them. There's just uh, the pronouncements like you heard from Joe Biden, how he single handedly stopped Ebola from landing on our shores uh, back uh, in December uh, of 13 to February of 14, when that was a a global perceived to be a global threat, particularly because of its lethality and how uh, vicious that virus was as well. So there's two things, right? There's the public health piece and then there's the economic health pieces. Uh, On uh, Monday and Tuesday, you saw the Dow shed six and a half percent of its uh, valuation. So uh, definitely some blood on the streets. Probably Good buying opportunity, but I digress. Sticking on the health piece for a second, I just want to reiterate something that Scott Gottlieb had uh, tweeted out. Scott Gottlieb is former FDA director under Trump, and he is a medical doctor. And he talked about one of the things that the FDA and CDC can do is uh, help to eliminate bottlenecks in the form of the FDA and the CDC when it comes to diagnostic testing. You had the report today that uh, the first case in Brazil and South America and it had it's somebody who had traveled to Italy. And so, yes, there's the likelihood that it is going to make its way to our shores. And there are open questions. This is uh, Rod Rosenstein's sister, small world at Beltway, uh, who is uh with uh, CDC, Nancy Messonnet.
11: We expect we will see community spread in this country. It's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a, que- a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness.
1: That is, uh, a, those are good questions. Uh, people would love to have the answers, apparently, and they're they're sort of imponderables at this point, too. It's about preparedness and being smart and protecting health care workers who be treating people who... Uh, may ultimately become uh, infected and and ill. And remember here what the illness is, the lethality level, it's fairly low, particularly in the industrialized West from all indications. So just some proportionality in response here, both on the public health side as well as the economic side. Uh, Let me get to the economic side. I just want to finish this point about Gottlieb. He, He talks about diagnostic testing, that is right now centralized through the CDC taking 36 to 48 hours to get uh, samples returned to test it and and the results returned. Well, if there's a significant outbreak like more than a few dozen cases, which we've had now, then it's easy that could easily overwhelm the CDC. So he, uh, Dr. Gottlieb talked about the, um, uh, these uh, lab developed tests at local, Hospitals and clinics that could be used to aid in the process of uh, of screening individuals and identifying people early on that may be infected. LDTs is what he calls them. These laboratory. Uh, uh, um, yeah, laboratory uh, detected laboratory developed tests is what they're called. LDTs. So just uh, that, in addition to the news coming out that uh, a coronavirus uh, uh vaccines may be ready for testing in the next six weeks so the private sector is responding to the threat level uh even as uh, the market plunges um but but again proportionality mentioned this before but let's just talk about it again thinking about if we would have the coverage of flu in this country like we have coronavirus what the impact would be so far again cdc estimates from October through February 15th, 29 to 41 million people in America, the flu, 280 to 500,000 hospitalizations because of the flu, 16,000 low end to 41,000 deaths related to the flu. Now is coronavirus exactly like the flu? No, it isn't, but are the symptoms very similar? Yes. Those who are otherwise not vulnerable, seem to have um, a pretty good uh, response to it. In point of fact, even a Harvard epidemiologist who's predicting a significant percentage of the global population will be infected suggests that some won't even know they're infected because the, some are asymptomatic. The, uh, the, 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 the um, significance of the virus, how much it negatively impacts their health, It will not be substantial. So all this running around and clearing out supermarkets and, you know, doing doomsday prepping is a bit silly. And the same thing goes with our economic health. Uh, CNBC had a graphic yesterday. SARS, the bird flu, avian influenza, MERS, Ebola, Zika and Corona. Looking at what the uh, S&P change was, the market hit that uh, the results of that uh, was visited upon. Uh, the S&P during these other viral emergencies. SARS, January 03 to March 03, 38 trading days, S&P down 13%. Bird flu, Jan 04 to August 04, 141 trading days, S&P change was down 7%. MERS, 43 trading days, down 7%. Ebola, 23 trading days, down 6%. Zika, November 15 to February 16, 66 trading days, down 13%. And Corona, uh, again, uh, twenty-three trading days as of the reporting uh, of this information, this data, and it was down to two two point two percent, a little bit more after Monday and Tuesday. But you get the point. It's not to not be cautious. It's not to not take the advice and counsel of health authorities. It's not to uh, uh, take the sort of judicious action that you would otherwise take in flu season. It's just not to run around f- suggesting that this is the end of humanity like some are doing. Or, frankly, the end of the American economy, or the end of global supply chains like some are doing. We're a long way from that level of concern. This is the damn project.
3: Show.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, one of the features of the second debate involving Mike Bloomberg. As compared to the first debate last week in Vegas Is you got to see the Bloomberg let his hair down a little bit A funny, funny man, Michael Bloomberg Such as when he was asked about some of his uh, nanny state gambits Like eliminating sugary drinks
5: Mayor Bloomberg, as mayor of New York You declared war on obesity You banned trans fats from restaurants And you tried to do the same with large sugary drinks So if you become president, will you push those policies On the national level as well.
7: Well, I think what's right for New York City isn't necessarily right for all the other cities. Otherwise, you'd have a naked cowboy in every city. So let's get serious here. But I do think it's the Uh government's job to have good science and to explain to people what science says, how to take care of themselves and extend their lives.
1: Yeah. So uh, don't let uh, those uh, zingers fool you. Uh, He just said uh, what is good for New York is good for the rest of the country. And uh, Bloomberg, self-effacing always, don't let uh, his uh, imperious pr- presentation fool you.
7: Let me also say, because just uh, since, since I have the floor for a second, that I really am surprised that all of these, uh, my fellow uh, Uh, um, contestants up here, I guess would be the right word for it, (laughs) given nobody pays attention to the clock. uh, I'm surprised they show up because I would have thought after I did such a good job in beating them last week that they'd be a little bit afraid to do that. And
1: And the tumbleweeds rolled by. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly. She's a senior contributor for Am Greatness, uh, AmericanGreatness. Greatness dot Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: <laughs> Dan, what you have no sense of humor? No, I know Come on, that is good stuff.
1: No, Bloomberg. I mean, the, the guy he's going to kill in the <laughs> the Catskills. Uh, there's no question about it. He is a funny, funny man, and this uh, it, it's a perfect example of why I understand. Uh, the left dumping ne- the Never Trumpers, as you wrote about it, amgreatness.com, dot com. Because why are the Never Trumpers running around with this uh, argumentation that Bernie Sanders is an inevitability? When you got a madcap like Mike Bloomberg running around,
11: I mean, he, he, I, once he takes that shtick on the road, he's going to run away with it yeah. because people will just be, you know, inside splitting, bent over, just guffawing you know, at all of his. Uh, Polarity, so that's that's what we need. That's what the country needs. Mike Bloomberg's humor to bring us together.
1: But the the rift between the Never Trumpers and the left. I mean, so I mean that's a fairly small alliance because just in raw numbers, but nonetheless they have a disproportionate voice because so many of them have uh, you know columns and and outlets they're affiliated with. Uh, The left uh, jettisoning the the Never Trumpers of the world. I hope that doesn't uh, jeopardize Brett Stevens's uh, position at the New York Times.
11: Right. Uh, So what's interesting, Dan, is all of a sudden now that the never Trumpers have crossed their lane. Right. So they're only useful idiots to the left when they're bashing Trump and Trump supporters and calling them names, et cetera. But now that they've put their toe in the water of Democratic politics and warning Democrats not to nominate Bernie Sanders, all of a sudden they've turned on never Trump. Who are you? You're not even wanted in your own party. You've gotten everything wrong. Why are you giving us advice? You know, run away, go back home. And all of a sudden, too, they've realized, the media and the left, that never Trump doesn't speak for anyone but themselves. They don't represent the 95 percent of Republicans who support Donald Trump. So it's been quite a revelation over the past few weeks of the same kind of things we've been talking about for the last three years.
1: It it really is. It's, it's, It's sort of, I mean... You know, intellectually, you can work your way through it, but but it's a different sort of experience to actually see it and to see like the Bill Crystal, James Carville, Chris Matthews, Joy Reid all reading from the same playbook.
11: Right, and also they are confronting never Trumpers on the set of MSNBC or on social media and throwing their own words back in their face. So they're asking someone like Steve Schmidt, who ran the disastrous 2008 McCain campaign, and said, look, Steve Schmidt, you've said for three years that Donald Trump is an existential threat to the country, to the world, that he's the most wretched man to ever hold office. If that's true, then how can you not vote for Bernie Sanders if he's the Democratic nominee? You can't be serious then. And so, of course, they have no answer for that because this is what they've set up for themselves.
1: Uh, when we come back with uh, Julie Kelly, I want to ask maybe if there's a common denominator, uh, a common affliction that uh, brings some of those never-Trumpers together with the uh, dem establishment types like uh, Tiny Dancer and uh, so many that have TV shows and columns. More with Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, right after this.
0: If she's seen her share of devils in this angel town. fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, And this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back. We're talking to Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness and am greatness.com is the website. Her piece, The Left Dumps, Never Trump. And uh, was uh, we were discussing that. And I wonder if... Um, that Bernie presents some to some extent in different ways, but there's a symmetry there. The same problem that Trump, Bernie presents to the ROMs and the Chris Matthews of the world. The same problem that Trump presented to, say, the uh, Bill Crystals and maybe Jonah Goldbergs of the world, that if they are ascendant, then meaning uh, Bernie's ascendant, like as Trump was ascendant, then that means those pundits and writers are going to be marginalized. That what's really happening here is there's a, a mutual desire across the political spectrum to be relevant. And what's happening to the Bill Crystals and the Brett Stevens and some of these other names is they're becoming completely irrelevant.
11: Um, they really are. And so, to the extent, Dan, that Trump wins or loses, what happens to Never Trump after that? Does, does Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post finally realize that there's no point anymore of having Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot as your marquee so-called conservative columnists when they don't represent anyone? You know, are they going to actually get some nerve and help promote a better political discourse, dialogue, by having Trump-supporting pundits or columnists or influencers on CNN, on the pages of the New York Times, instead of, like you said, Brett Stevens. So it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out either way after the election. But look, they are, and I've written about this, and you know this, they are very well funded by leftist interests, including Piero Midiar, who is a left-wing billionaire, co-founder of eBay. He is backing, with tens of millions of dollars, most of these Never Trump projects. One of them was the group that came out with the uh, letter against Bill Barr. So he's got all these little Never Trump outlets that he's dumping tens of millions of dollars in. And whether they get kicked off CNN or The Washington Post, that still will be their platform.
1: Interesting, because something Victor Davis Hansen said the last time uh, we spoke with him on this show is that, you know, he knows and he wasn't going to name names. But he knows a lot of people whose lifestyles change in, in conservative circles, you know, punditry and commentator circles whose lives changed after Trump was elected for the worse in terms of their household income. And uh, there's a lot of people who saw it, uh, who took a hit in terms of their uh, relevance and their market viability and their household income. And they're none too happy about it. So it has less to do with a, a particular Trump tweet. And more to do with how Trump has impacted their livelihood.
11: I think that's true. And I think it's ego, too. You know, you look at somebody like Bill Crystal, who started his anti-Trump project in 2015, almost five years ago. He's been wrong about everything. So he just keeps shooting, you know, hoping at one point he'll be right. But now that he's turned on Bernie Sanders, and I mean, he was in New Hampshire campaigning, um, telling independents to pull a Democratic primary ballot to vote for anyone but Bernie Sanders. So this is going to backfire on people like them, just like it backfired for Trump. Because you just said there's a lot of similarities between the ascendancy of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party and Trump in the Republican Party in 2016. So it probably will have the same outcome. Um, but to what extent they keep their left-wing funding uh, platforms um, you know, they've run a ton of ads. They've got millions of dollars in one organization that's run by Bill Crystal, and they can just go above and beyond, you know, the traditional media that they've been relying on for the past few years.
1: Uh, going to the global uh, comparisons that are being made, uh, this is becoming a, a virtually conventional. Uh, That, uh, you know, Sanders in 2020 is Trump in 2016. They're sort of negative composites of one another. Jason Riley writing The Wall Street Journal. Should he get the nomination? A Sanders victory in November is no more implausible than uh, Trump's was in 2016. I don't agree with that because, number one, you have an incumbent president, not an open seat, as was the case in 2016. Uh, And you have an incumbent president who is presiding over a fairly robust economy and having delivered on a number of promises to his base. So it's just a totally different dynamic. In addition to that, you don't have anybody that was talking about political revolution in such a way that is foreign to a majority of Americans the way that Bernie Sanders' socialist revolution is.
11: Right. And what's frightening, if it were just Bernie Sanders saying this, fine. But if Bernie Sanders is backed by a significant left-wing caucus in the House of Representatives and led by very popular representatives like AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. They suck all the air out of social media. They are running progressive candidates, not against Republican lawmakers, against moderate Democrats. So let's say, worst-case scenario, Bernie Sanders can get his agenda through. And so to the point whether he can win or not, I mean, those people are going to make a lot of noise. And they're going to force the Jim Carvels, et cetera, of the world to get on board with them because um, this is all about power. And you know those Democrats care way more about getting power. And say Republican, the never Trump pundits, they they still don't understand about winning elections.
1: But your sense, though, too, is I mean, just in terms of presentation, and and you're right to point out what I call the socialist Spice Girls there, who may be popular in their <laughs> districts or with within a slice of the Twitter sphere, but not so much necessarily on the hustings. I just don't know that that presents well and can sell well, even if Bernie is right now, you know, within striking distance of Trump or to dead heat or whatever. I mean that that is a that is a tough sell he would have to make over the. Uh, next eight months.
11: Oh, absolutely. And I know you probably talked to Democrats too. I, I do too. And, you know, they've said if it's Sanders, they're going to vote for Trump. So I don't think this idea that Bernie Sanders can beat Trump is realistic. You know, his people are going to push really hard. How that moves the votes in some of these swing states, it's hard to see that Bernie will pick up anything uh, over Trump.
1: Well, and you have the additional challenge that Hillary Clinton have. You can get the same percentage of a particular demographic that's part of your coalition. But if you don't get the the same, if you don't get the necessary turnout, then you don't get the aggregate votes you need. And it's a problem. And a good example of this is the black vote. And there was a a survey out this week that Politico reported where one third of uh, black voters say they wish somebody else was running between Bernie and Trump. So if they sit on their hands, that redounds to the benefit of Trump.
11: That's right. And this is there's another thing that's so major, uh, which is why Democrats are going to whatever, try any tricks they can, especially um, to keep some of the You know, this will be a redistricting year after this election. And so you already have people like Eric Holder and they are they have been dumping millions of dollars. So this is not just, you know, a. Bernie Sanders issue. This is all down ticket for them, too, because if they lose governorship, if they lose state houses, um, they're going to be in a lot of trouble with remaps, which will happen after the census.
1: She is Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Check out her recent piece, The Left Dumps Never Trump. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: Thanks, Dan.
0: You'll know this is the Dan Prof show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof show. Uh, Last hour we talked about the Project Veritas undercover report on ABC News, uh, getting uh, ABC News correspondent David Wright to admit he was a socialist and criticize. uh, the uh, coverage that ABC News offers the president and just in general when it comes to politics and helping to inform voters. Uh, but lest you think uh, this is the only institution that is uh, dominated by self-avowed socialists, lest you think it is the repository of uh, elites on the coasts. No, uh, college fix, which is uh Education News website uh, that covers uh, campus goings, uh, looked at Big Ten universities, particularly those in uh, swing states, battleground states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Uh, but Big Ten as a whole. The contributions, political contributions to Democratic and Republican presidential hopefuls by college employees, university employees, Big Ten university employees. 99% of the contributions from employees at Big Ten universities go to Democrats. Number one recipient, Bernie Sanders. Number two, Elizabeth Warren. Together, they account for nearly 60% of the more than $1.2 million donated to presidential candidates by employees of Big Ten conference schools since 2018. Now, 1.2 is not a huge number, um, but that's not really the point. The point is talking about sort of the attitude on a college campus by your administrators and professors. Now, these these are the people who eliminate Shakespeare as a requirement to get an English major. These are the, the uh, uh, bias response team proponents and opponents of free thinking and free speech in practice, despite the positions they take in public. According to data from the FEC, Sanders uh, led the uh, the field bringing in about 383 grand. That's 32% of all big 10 conference employee contributions. Warren 336 grand or about 28% Democrats, uh, Pete Buttigieg received 20 grand, about 20%. Uh, and, uh, Joe Biden brought in about six grand, six and a half percent. (laughs) Joe Biden, one of the most liberal members of the Senate when he was a senator, and now, you know, a, a old fuddy-duddy establishment type that the uh, real Marxists on college campuses want nothing to do with. Oh, and by the way, President Trump, 16,000, 1.4 uh, percent of the total contributions. University of Michigan, the most politically active school. It, it's employees donating 163 grand, Minnesota second with 140, followed by uh, Madison, University of Wisconsin, Madison with 127 grand, the least active. And maybe if you're going to send your kid to a Big Ten school, this is where you should send them. And I'm speaking as a Northwestern University grad. Oh, by the way, Nebraska, whose employees only contributed a total of 19.5. The less politics, probably the better education. Certainly the less Marxists, as educators, the better education. So go Cornhuskers. This is the Dan Proft Far from the fake news, he's always
0: got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show.
1: You are fake news. Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Elizabeth Warren went to the well once too often uh, last night in Charleston. You know, she came out uh, throwing haymakers against Bloomberg in Vegas. But going back to the whole issue of the uh, sexual harassment complaints at uh, Bloomberg Corp and the NDAs, it just turned out to be a little much. I think it fell really flat, as her campaign has.
5: When I was 21 years old, I got my first job as a special education teacher. I loved that job. And by the end of the first year, I was visibly pregnant. The principal wished me luck and gave my job to someone else. It's a lie. Pregnancy discrimination, you bet. But I was 21 years old. I didn't have a union to protect me, and I didn't have any federal law on my side. So I packed up my stuff and I went home. At least I didn't have a boss who said to me, "Kill it," the way that I Mayor Bloomberg never said that. to have said okay. to one of oh, his on. pregnant employees. People want a chance that... to hear.
1: Oh, the are out.
5: People want a chance Thank you, to Senator. hear. From I, the women who I never said that, and for the record, if she respond. was a teacher
7: in New York City, she would never have had that problem. We treated our teachers the right way, and no. the unions will tell you exactly that. Well,
5: well then, Mayor Bloomberg, then Senator then Warren us, has raised... Let us have the women have an opportunity to speak. The Bloomberg corporations and Mayor Bloomberg himself have been accused of discrimination. They are bound by non disclosures so that they cannot speak. If he says there is nothing to hide here, then sign a blanket release and let those women speak out hey, hi, so that they hey, can hi, tell their no. stories the don't way I can tell my story without Nora, having to thank you I and this Nora. Is going to be sued thank by you. a billionaire.
1: Well, Caesar Mike had his turn to respond to that. If he, he could muster a little bit more moral indignation to be convincing.
7: Probably wrong to make the jokes. I don't remember what they were. So I assume I, if it bothered them, I was wrong and I apologize. I'm sorry for that. But the, what happened stop here is we went back 40 years and we could only find three cases where women said they were uncomfortable. Nobody accused me of doing anything other than just making a comment or two. And what the senator did suggest was that we release these women from the nondisclosure agreement. I did that two days later, and my company has said we will not use nondisclosure agreements ever again. The senator has got it. And I don't know what else she wants us to do. Oh, I'll be We're clear. We're following exactly what she asked to I'll tell do. I exactly and what And the trouble I want you to is do. with this senator, enough is never enough for what this. I'm going to start focusing on some of these other things. We just cannot continue to relitigate this every time. We did what she asked.
1: And uh, thank you. We've probably made the world better because of it. Well, uh, don't, uh, you know, break your hand congratulating yourself there on the back. But hey, uh, Caesar Mike, welcome to the party. Oh, the left, if you give the left an inch, they will take miles and miles and miles on a trip that has no endpoint. Welcome to the party. That is the posture on everything, on every power gambit. And of course, Caesar Mike is a bit blind to it because he's just focusing on those opportunities where he is given an inch to take miles and miles. But that was the most instructive piece of it is Bloomberg's exasperation and nothing is ever good enough in terms of ceding my autonomy to political hacks like Elizabeth Warren. Welcome to the Frackin' party, pal. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Francis Menton, the Manhattan contrarian, who's uh, written a couple of good recent posts on uh, the Bolshevik as well as the uh, Russian meddling in the 2020 election. We've got a revised estimate on that we wanted to discuss Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, Glad to be here. Well, you're the Manhattan contrarian, so uh, how is uh, your guy from Manhattan doing?
3: I think he's got uh, more of a shot than you might think. I would say after Bernie, he might be the second guy in the betting odds at this point.
1: What's your assessment of the approach he's taking where he is was perceived until this race to have had a fairly successful tenure as mayor, despite some of his nanny state tendencies. But he's essentially run away from his record. So now it's a little bit difficult exactly what to make him of, of him other than a real rich guy.
3: Right. He actually ran in the Republican Party for mayor of New York twice, the third time as an independent. He was running against leftist uh, Democrats at that time and defeated them, obviously, uh, fairly narrowly. But he won as a Republican mayor in New York and governed as a moderate. Of course, he has his nanny state uh, things, but he definitely governed as a moderate. And of course, on joining the Democratic Party, you just can't do that. There, there's there's no limit to the programs and spending that you have to propose and go along with. So there he is.
1: Seems it's, uh, you know, the the parallels to 2016, where you're trying to see the field winnow to have a, a quote unquote conservative alternative to Trump. And here you're trying to get uh, the Mensheviks to winnow down to one to have a, uh, I guess uh, you would argue, a little bit more moderate challenger to the Bolshevik.
3: Yeah, this point isn't original to me, but I think many have said that the thing that gave Donald Trump his opening was that he had so many opponents and it was really him against all of them. They divided the vote and gave him the opportunity to go through is the same thing happening right now for Sanders. Sure. Looks like it is.
1: CNN yesterday, boy, this must have been a difficult story for them to write. The U.S. intelligence community's top election security official appears to have overstated the intelligence community's formal assessment of Russian interference in the 2020 election, omitting important nuance during a briefing with lawmakers earlier this month, according to three national security officials who spoke to CNN. Boy, I guess that's what happens when you rely on uh, leaks from meetings that uh, don't have uh, multiple independent corroboration. Uh, All of this hysteria that uh, Russia is back to back uh, Trump and uh, and in the primary to back Bernie on the other side to help Trump in the general and so on and so forth. The conspiracy theory goes. And, uh, you know, the question that's never asked is what exactly does Russian meddling look like? What does it constitute? What specifically is the threat and how? How potentially impactful could whatever it is they're allegedly planning be? And it turns out that they're already uh, revising the threat level down, uh, which is uh, rather remarkable given the hysteria over the weekend.
3: I find the whole uh, Russia meddling thing to be about the funniest of all the political stories that we have. Now, I found it funny when it first started back in 2017, right around the time of Trump's inauguration I thought it was completely preposterous and completely laughable and yet it kept went on and on and on and on for two years that we got Buller and we got midnight raids on people's houses and it, it just endless amounts of hysteria over it, and now it's back. It's beyond ridiculous. It's particularly beyond ridiculous because the idea that Russia supports Trump is unbelievably laughable, preposterous, in my opinion. But
1: there's a, as some segment of the population that isn't laughing. They're spinning conspiracy theories, and they're being helped by a failed Hollywood screenwriter, Larry O'Donnell. Larry O'Donnell has MSNBC show this weekend. Listen to this.
0: But we begin tonight... With another test of America's ability to be shocked by Donald Trump, who has very deliberately shocked America to the point where he hopes that shock has been replaced by acceptance. The president is a Russian operative. That sounds like the description of a bad Hollywood screenplay, but it
1: is real. It's real, Francis. I don't watch MSNBC
3: that much, but they've got Rachel Maddow It's just as bad. All I can say is the fracking revolution, which Trump supports, has caused the price of oil and gas to fall by about half since Obama's second term, and Trump wants that to continue. Oil and gas is a huge part of Russia's economy, and more important, it's the majority of Russia's Government revenues and exports, Russia is completely dependent on that compared to our economy where it's a couple of percent. In their economy for government revenues and, and uh, exports, it's more than half. And they lost half of that money when the price went down. And all the Democratic candidates want to ban fracking and have the price of <laughs> oil go back up. That means trillions and trillions of dollars for Russia. So who does Putin support? This is the most ridiculous thing hysteria i have ever seen in my life
1: you're missing it francis here's what's going to happen <laughs> in the second term the second term he's got to get reelected and then he's going to invite the red army in to take over america it's going to be like red dawn you're going to see uh parachutes in the skies over the heartland they're going to take over america wrest control of our economy the largest in the world and we're going to live under soviet domination
3: uh, if you believe that, there's no response to it. No, That's I do
1: I'm, I'm auditioning <laughs> for a, a guest hosting gig on MSNBC. He is uh, Francis Menton, the Manhattan contrarian. Uh, check out his pieces, which I'll tweet out. If you can articulate a limiting principle on government expansion, you get Bernie Sanders. If you can't articulate, obviously. Uh, and then also, could we really be facing Russia 2.0, as we were discussing? Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
3: So glad to be here.
0: No one knows seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
1: Time now for another reason why
8: Dan Puff is single.
1: Yeah, my boyfriend's wedding dress unveiled my own shortcomings over masculinity, writes Emily Halnon, the guardian. Well, this isn't for an actual wedding. This was for an event. Mother's Day Climb. A Mother's Day Climb on Mount St. Helens. They're searching for dresses to wear during the annual Mother's Day Climb up Mount St. Helens. Decades-long tradition, which everyone scaling the volcano that day sports flowing garments in honor of female mountaineers and mothers everywhere. Emily's boyfriend, Ian, really gets into it. And it's not only for that occasion that he gets into wearing women's clothing. And so I'm just wondering, would you be okay having a boyfriend or a husband who likes to wear dresses this um, Mother's Day Climb? I knew uh, Ian would be among the most outrageous on the mountain. My boyfriend is aggressively fun and a flair fanatic. Oh, Ian. Which I find wildly attractive on most occasions, like when he's scaling technical slopes in jorts and a cat shirt or skiing the steepest lines in Pacific Northwest in space tights. But I found myself unexpectedly uneasy with his new fondness for feminine frocks, a reaction that challenged the progressive ideals I prided myself on for decades. I uh, long thought I was contributing to a progressive shift in how we define masculinity, finally allowing men to be emotional and vulnerable, to ask for help, to hug their male friends, and to wear dresses. That is the natural progression. Ian giggled, if anybody ever describes me as that, showing his dress to his girlfriend. Isn't it beautiful? His chest hair battled the sheer neckline. The skirt fanned out as wide as a beach umbrella, a garment fit for Vegas chapel. This was not the first time I found myself a little uncomfortable with the sight of Ian in women's wear. It's not an unusual sight to spot him sporting a skirt, dress, or sarong at a party, picnic, or trailhead. He uses his unconventional apparel as a display of his individuality and a reflection of his fondness for fun. I adore both of those qualities. But I was realizing I was less fond of seeing them exhibited through floral numbers or tight sequined garments or wedding dresses. Sure, there's got to be limits. She recalls, Emily, the first weekend we hooked up. I had to yank a green sparkly dress over his head to unclothe him. Foreplay involved palming his glittery glutes while dancing to Kesha's woman and caressing his furry thigh along a hemline so tight you could almost see the outlines of each and every hair follicle beneath it. This is turning into Fifty Shades of Grey. That was the first time I've undressed a man from a dress, she said the next morning. You're not breaking up with him. No, what she's doing instead is performing, I'm quoting, a scrupulous inventory of my deepest ideas about masculinity to help her identify her shortfalls as a woman who wants to help rewrite gender norms. As I went through this exercise, writes Emily, I chatted with a handful of girlfriends about it, sure, who could all identify their own small hang-ups with masculinity, their need for men who are bigger and taller than they are, who are better than at them at sports or who don't cry in front of them. As we interrogated our feelings about masculinity, we recognized gaps between our ideas and reality. I'm quick to blame men for perpetuating toxic behavior. But in this case, I, the woman who's toxic now, sister, she uh, talks about them reaching the summit as a metaphor for reaching the summit of their relationship. And uh, so they're summiting the mountain. Do you find your boyfriend as attractive as I do? Her friend Eli whispered as we watch Ian plant his poles. I don't know if that's a metaphor confidently in front of his flowing skirt, his hairy and silky chest beaming proud against the horizon, his laughing smile nearly detectable through the back of his floral sun hat. My eyes chase my boyfriend down the mountain, my sensitive, silly, affectionate, emotional, silly heart, vulnerable boyfriend skiing in his wedding dress. I do. I promised. It's not even a why Dan Proft single. It's almost a dramatic reading, but it is also a why Dan prop is single. I mean, who are these women? Um, hey, uh, Emily, should I break this to Emily about Ian, or do you want to? I was wondering where Pajama Boy from the Obama commercials wound up. Steve on the South Side. To, to your guys' point, nobody cares about your soy boy romance.
6: Get Get busy making something with your life. Don't write about soy
1: boy oh well have a great day thanks for the call, Steve. i mean you you have to write about these things we have to, f- to feel our feelings we have to express them we have to do scrupulous inventories of our deepest ideas about gender norms if we want to change them if we want to live our progressive values a related story total sperm count in north america europe australia and new zealand dropped by 60 percent in the last four decades according to research sperm count among western men plummeting yeah no kidding we got guys running up mountains in wedding dresses. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. This uh, study uh, by the uh, Harvard uh, School of Public Health, uh, it, it relates it to diet. That's where they think the correlation. Is. On average, men who typically ate a westernized diet of uh, pizza, snacks, sweets, processed foods, produce 68 million fewer sperm upon ejaculation. Uh, 68 million fewer sperm upon ejaculation than men who ate a more healthy, balanced diet. I mean, this is a science man is considered to have a low sperm count. This is perfect for our friends at Low T Center. If he has less than 39 million sperm per ejaculation or fewer than 15 million sperm per millimeter.
8: Mm
1: -hmm. You you know, count, count. uh, I feel like count on an electric company. Mm -hmm. The study, (laughs) you got to get to 15 million. The study looked at uh, 3,000 Danish men of normal weight with a median age of 19, who were all undergoing a physical determine in their fitness for military service, which is required in Denmark. Blood and semen samples were taken, and the men completed a questionnaire that asked how often they had eaten 136 food items in the prior three months. Four different food patterns. The prudent food pattern, fish, chicken, vegetables, fruit, water. The open sandwich pattern, more typically Danish diet with greater intake of cold, processed meats, whole grain breads, mayonnaise, cold fish. The vegetarian-like pattern, vegetables, soy, milk, eggs, no red meat or chicken. And the unhealthy Western uh, pattern with the pizza and snacks I just described. Uh, Best on the uh, sperm count upon ejaculation. The the immediate sperm count of men who had the highest uh, adherence to the prudent pattern. 68 million sperm higher than men who had the highest adherence to the Western pattern. So the best is the, the prudent pattern. And the worst is the Western pattern, and the vegetarian pattern is second, upon ejaculation. Brenda on the north side. (laughs) Brenda, Brenda, save us. Uh, Hi. Oh. uh, Hello?
9: (laughs) Okay, well, I just wanted to chime in on why Brenda is single, and it's because of the opposite of what this lady is saying. Um, Me and most of my girlfriends— are trying to find real men who are men who have traditional values, mm-hmm. want to stand up and protect a woman and be a provider and be a grown-up and not a little baby man. So,
1: Do you have a minimum required yeah, no, spring that's count?
9: Ridiculous. No, the, I would say the typical woman is really not
5: interested in that at all, and this is just your fringe leftist nonsense.
1: Have you done a scrupulous inventory of your deepest thoughts about gender norms?
9: Oh, no, absolutely not. All right. Why would I do that? I don't know. I just
1: want man. <laughs> All right. I just want a real man. All right, Brenda. Well, good luck out there. It's a jungle out there, I guess, for single people on both sides of the aisle. Shake it up.
4: Shake it up. Shake it
5: up. Shake it up. What's sure. up? Sure.
0: To the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, the question near the end of the debate about uh, each candidate answering what the misperception about them is. That zany Amy Klobuchar came up with one.
7: The biggest misconception is that I'm boring because I'm not. Um, <laughs> no, and, yeah. uh, I would say yeah. that um, my motto uh, is the words of one of my political mentors, Paul Wellstone, who sadly no longer with us, and he said uh, that politics is about improving
1: people's lives. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. What's the hundred thousand dollars? That's a great clue. I'm. I'm. People say I'm boring, but I'm not. Uh, for $100,000 pyramid, the category things boring people say. Also, Amy Klobuchar made a point during the debate to say she was the only one in the Vegas debate who raised her hand and said, no, I got a problem with an avowed socialist being at the top of our ticket. And uh, she cites as uh, her motto uh, the words of a socialist. I mean, Paul Wellstone. I'm sorry that he uh, died early, but he was a socialist. Anyway, uh, this is uh, dovetails nicely into a piece by Carol Markowitz, New York Post. (laughs) Goddesses are victims, the less unreal view of womanhood. If you're reading this, consider yourself lucky, for I am a woman and I know all. I'm an oracle of the primordial wisdom of womanhood, a goddess of too often suppressed insight. Everything I do and say is perfect. My powers are all encompassing. Judging by their pro-female effusions, Markowitz goes on: "Women are so much better than men in every respect, in every one of life's dimensions, that any power granted us could never be squandered or misused. It can only redound to the benefit of humankind." Parenthetical: That is, so long as the women in question women in question are reliable left wingers, of course. Uh, everything is magical. Uh, everything is, uh, as uh, Markowitz says, insightful. Uh, and there's nothing that women can't do except, I don't know, flee the oppression they live under because of men. It's very much like uh, the way that everybody on stage talks about black voters. They can do nothing without white socialists. They don't have agency. They're victims. And so, ianna Presley, this year, the year in 2020, the year is 2020. And here we women are still in so many ways not fully free, still shackled. Magical beings that are being shackled it's a lot to reconcile for more on the topic and uh, the debate and uh, a little bit of talk about coronavirus too we're pleased to be joined by Kaylee McGee commentary writer for washington examiner washingtonexaminer.com kaylee thanks for joining us appreciate it
9: yeah absolutely thanks for having me
1: what about that uh, the uh, the the scintillating amy klobuchar and the uh, and she does that all the time. And Warren tells, and she did again last night, the sophistry of fictional stories about her being fired because she was pregnant, which has been debunked. Um, the idea that women are both goddesses and oracles, as well as perpetual victims.
9: Yeah, it's obvious that, I mean, you think about it, the left definitely, definitely plays by identity identity politics standards. So anytime that Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren can use their femininity to their advantage, they are going to do so. You saw that a lot um, during last night's debate. And to be honest, especially with Elizabeth Warren, it's really the only card that she's pulled on her main rival, Bernie Sanders. She refuses to go after him for his policies. So instead, she's tried to differentiate herself by saying, Well, I'm a female and Bernie doesn't like that. We had that entire back and forth accusation where she accused him of being sexist. And so that's going to continue as long as these two are in the race.
1: And uh, you also wrote about the exchange she had with Bloomberg uh, repeating an allegation that was lodged against him in a civil complaint that he had told a female employee to kill her unborn baby. And it seemed like Warren was not upset about the idea of killing an unborn baby, but she was upset about Michael Bloomberg telling anybody to do it
9: exactly and by going after bloomberg again last night she was trying to get back some of the energy that she had in the previous debate in which she really came out swinging against bloomberg and it was widely um, considered that she had won that exchange but last night you did not see that same energy you didn't see the same result it was bloomberg was obviously better prepared this time around And to be frank, Elizabeth Warren is wasting her time going after a third place candidate while she's still a fifth place candidate. She should be going after Bernie. She should be going after Biden, but she continues to go after Bloomberg because the accusations of sexism are so much easier with him than with Bernie or Biden.
1: Uh, I want to pick up this uh, conversation, talk a little bit about the exchanges over uh, who likes which dictator, too, which were fun. We're speaking with Kaylee McGee, commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll be right back with more Kaylee McGee after this.
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking to Kaylee McGee from the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. And, of course, uh, Bernie was prepared to be taken to task for his compliments and Castro's direction. But it was interesting. Uh, one of the individuals uh, perhaps most well-positioned to do that has his own problem, and that, again, is Mayor Bloomberg, who uh, can't seem to get out of uh, his own way when it comes to uh, these matters of uh, previous statements for which he needs to perpetually apologize.
7: But uh, there's no question he has an enormous amount of power, um, and um, he. but he does play to his constituency.
1: You can negotiate with him. That he is President Xi of China, uh, probably the wrong timing to be uh, uh, re- doubling down on your previous compliments of President Xi and the Chinese communists, given their handling of the coronavirus outbreak. But it, it just seems that... Um, You know, whatever uh, whatever tack they take with Bernie, Kaylee, whether it's to characterize him as a radical, even though everybody on stage is starting from the same premises, for the most part, with the exceptions really uh, mainly having to do with Bloomberg. Uh, And even when it comes to dictators, even what Joe Biden said about uh, 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 but never, tolerating dictators, and that, that certainly didn't happen on Obama's watch.
2: He acknowledged that they did increase life expectancy, but he went on and condemned the dictatorship. He went on and di- condemned the people who, in fact, had run that committee. He also made sure, to make it clear, and by the way, I called to make sure that I was prepared to I, was, I never say mine of my private conversation with him, but the fact of the matter is, he, in fact, does not, did not, has never embraced an authoritarian regime, and does not now.
1: Well, that's an applause line in South Carolina to that audience, but it's also a lie. Nothing new for Joe Biden. Of course, Obama embraced Hugo Chavez and Obama was caught on a hot mic with Medvedev talking about a Russian reset after the 2012 election. So it, it just seems they, the, 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 the Mensheviks on stage are having a real difficult time landing an effective punch against the Bolshevik, Kaylee.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be a criticism that Bernie needs to continue to face, especially now that he's the Democratic front runner, because it seems like he has nothing but excuses for communist dictators who have taken thousands of lives. I mean, specifically Fidel Castro. The fact that he is willing to praise what he thinks are the best parts of Castro's communist regime in Cuba is really disturbing, and it should reveal something about the way that he views governance in general.
1: Yeah, but the interesting thing is, so Bloomberg has all sorts of business interests uh, over in China. I mean, he's sort of like Uh, personally the equivalent of Hollywood or the NBA with respect to the Bloomberg Chinese interests and uh, the things he said about uh, the Chinese communists previously and then said again on stage yesterday, and it sort of muddies the water in terms of any moral high ground.
9: Bloomberg's position on China is still pretty unclear. Obviously, he had some pretty disturbing remarks about um, China back in the day, but his, his remarks during... Um, last night's debate honestly kind of sounded a little bit like Trump's. To be honest, um, he didn't necessarily dismiss the idea of negotiating with China, but he also recognized, yes, there are problems with this trading partner, but we can't necessarily rule them out altogether because our economies are so intertwined. And that is, to be honest, the position that Trump has taken for the most part.
1: Uh, yeah, although he doesn't go so far as to pretend that she uh, is sort of answerable to uh, the, his, the 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 Chinese populace. The the way that Bloomberg seemed to indicate it yesterday. Right. Right. Uh, I wanted to get your take on uh, Joe Biden. Uh, he uh, gets the uh, Jim Clyburn endorsement today as expected to try to you know buoy his support among African-American voters in South Carolina for Saturday, even if he is to hang on and win his first presidential primary in life on Saturday. W- what do you see as his prospects going into Super Tuesday and beyond?
9: Well, it's very unclear how much political momentum, if any, Joe Biden would gain if he does win South Carolina. He seemed very confident last night that he will for sure win South Carolina. And I think that that's a risky bet to make at this point, considering that Bernie Sanders is closing the lead with Biden as we speak in the polls. So it's a bit of an overstatement to just conclude that Biden is going to win South Carolina. And it's really not clear if that's going to help him win any of the other Super Tuesday primary states.
1: Uh, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, with uh, the impact that the virus has had globally and the anticipated impact at some level it's going to have on America. Uh, Peace over at Yahoo News. The mantra is keep calm and carry on. That's Dr. Marguerite Neal, an infectious disease expert at Brown University. You're getting uh, advice like uh, if you see someone who is on a bus coughing, move away. That's Dr. Stanley Perlman, infectious disease and coronavirus expert at the University of Iowa. Wash your hands frequently. Dr. Trish Pearl, an infectious disease specialist at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Uh, Are you concerned uh, that uh, this is being overhyped and uh, uh, not just the, the nature of how many people may be impacted, but reminder about just exactly. We know about the severity of this illness, even if you are.
9: Health officials right now are basically preparing for a worst case scenario. So I don't necessarily think that now is the time to panic, but I also do think that their concerns are reasonable and that citizens should be paying attention because the problem with this virus is that we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. We have no many, we have no idea how many lives it's taken in China, largely because the regime will not allow us to know the full extent of the disease over there. We don't even know how many confirmed cases there are in the U.S. because the symptoms are so familiar um, compared to other sicknesses, and you don't really start showing symptoms until a couple of weeks later. So you could be spreading this disease without even knowing it. So there are definitely a lot of health concerns with this, but Obviously, the economy could have a larger effect than, you know, the American population's health. But I guess the effects really remain to be seen and they'll play out over the next month.
1: Yeah, although we do, you know, have the the 57 or maybe it's up to 59 now confirmed cases in the U.S. and we have no fatalities and we have some people who have been discharged from uh, medical settings after, you know, having the virus having run its course. So that. It tells us something about the lethality in addition to what we see from countries not named China who have experience with these infections, with the uh, those who have been infected.
9: Right. And health officials have already said that a vaccine for the coronavirus is actually ahead of schedule. And uh, compared to all the other countries facing this disease, the American health system is absolutely the best prepared for it. So there really is not a need to panic at all.
1: She is Kaylee McGee, commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Kaylee, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.
0: This is the Dan Prof
1: Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just want to pick up on our conversation with Kaylee McGee from the Washington Examiner, talking about the identity politics and just how how exhausting and tedious it really is, uh, how anti-intellectual it is, whether it's. Identity politics based on gender or race. And uh, what people get away with saying, because it just is it goes along unquestioned by so many good catch by the Washington Free Beacon of the statements made by Igor Volsky, who's the executive director of a gun ban group called Guns Down America. He said gunmakers are soft softening their image to put a better face in front of people and ramp up its appeal to women, children and members of minority groups. That's right. Volsky continued. Gunmakers are increasingly advertising to women, children and minority communities. Firearm industry realizes in, that to survive into the future, it must broaden its reach beyond the aging white men who have been its core customers. So now they're trying to sell their products to other demographics. This is incredibly dangerous. W- w- why is it dangerous for a woman or a minority to have a gun? What does that presume? What does that presume? It's dangerous for a minority to have a gun. Why? I presume uh, the minority, like ninety-five percent of the public, is law-abiding. What do you presume? I presume the women will, the woman who gets a gun will get the necessary training to be comfortable using it so that it's a useful tool for self-defense. What do you presume? It's dangerous in the hands of minorities and women should only be marketed to white men. I mean, I just, this is remarkable. The intellectual pretzel you get twisted in when you practice nothing but identity politics. And, uh, you know, then you have to apply it to different public policy issues. Like for example, second amendment rights issues. And, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, retired federal judge, Janice Rogers Brown, Earlier in the show, because of Joe Biden playing identity politics, I, I'm you know running for president to nominate a black female to the Supreme Court. OK, what about Janice Rogers Brown? She served a uh, uh, 12 years on the U.S. Court of Appeals District of Columbia. Probably not because she's a conservative black woman, but conservative. She was on Trump's shortlist for Supreme Court nominees. She may be a little too old. She's 70, not too old to do it. But, you know, you want somebody there for as long as possible, of course. But anyway, she gave a recent talk at the Heritage Foundation, did Judge Brown, and uh, she talked a little bit about identity politics. This was almost a direct response, although it's not intended to be, to so much of what you heard on the debate stage last night. Few people think that our country cannot be improved upon, but to present it as riddled with bigotry, hatred, and oppression is at best a partial and at worst a nakedly hostile prism through which to view society. It's an analysis expressed not in a manner of critique, of, of a critique, hoping to improve, But as an enemy eager to destroy, there are signs of this everywhere we looked. She uh, also said about identity politics. The common humanity identity of the civil rights here has been superseded by the virulent common enemy identity politics of today's progressives. Political correctness encouraged by good manners has become inciting orthodoxy. Speech codes have morphed into full scale riots where students at elite schools can threaten and badger administrators and faculty while claiming physical assaults on unpopular speakers are justifiable self-defense. That's where it all leads. Contrasting the words of Janice Rogers Brown, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, to the words of, uh, say, an Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren or this uh, Igor Volsky, this gun banning group. Thank you for joining us again on another installment of The Dan Prof Show. Please do tune in again tomorrow night.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show.
1: You are
4: fake news.